Welcome in, everybody, to the first episode of Paul's Points. I'm your host, Paul Fritchner, and thank you so much for listening to the show. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or really anywhere that podcasts are available. On today's show, I have former Xavier basketball player Brad Redford, who played for the Musketeers from 2009 to 2013, and he brings a really unique perspective to the table because he was a part of three different teams that advanced to the Sweet 16, and not a lot of players that played college basketball can say they were a part of a team that played in the NCAA tournament's second weekend. He also played under both head coach Sean Miller and Chris Mack at Xavier, Of course, Sean Miller now at the University of Arizona and Chris Mack at the University of Louisville. So some behind-the-scenes info from playing under both of them, his favorite moments at Xavier, playing in the Crosstown Shootout, who some of his favorite teammates were as a Musketeer, much more. Can't wait for you all to listen. I think Xavier fans and college basketball fans as a whole will really enjoy this conversation. If you want to watch this interview, you can just go to YouTube and search my YouTube channel, Paul Fritchner. All the interviews I have there will eventually be available here in podcast format, but I know some of you like to watch it. It's more interactive to see it on YouTube, so they're available there in video format as well. Some of you like to listen to it. It's easier for you to flip it on in the car and listen in a podcast format, so it's here on this site too. Hope you all enjoy this interview with former Xavier basketball player, Brad Redford. Brad, thanks for joining me this morning. How's uh, quarantine holding up for you? It's pretty pretty good, actually, so far. We're all healthy and safe here, and, and I couldn't think of anything I would rather do at this point than, than talk with Paul. So, I mean, this is, a, this is a special opportunity for me. So, thank you very much for your time. Well, that's saying something if that's what you <laughs> want to do to spend your free time. It, it actually is. I mean, it completely is. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do today and and talking with you is really give fans an in-depth look behind the scenes at Xavier basketball. And you're one of the more experienced players in this Xavier program, a recent member. You went to three Sweet 16s. You were a part of a team from 2009 to 2013. Your injury kept you there for another year. You were around to see a lot of Xavier's best players of the past 20 years, from guys like Two Holloway, Jordan Crawford, among many, many others, Mark Lyons. And I want to give fans an idea of what those teams were like. You played under Sean Miller. You played under Chris Mack. The differences between those guys and what the NCAA tournament is like. And I'll get right into it here, Brad. What are some specific things that stand out to you as differences between um, Coach Miller and Coach Mack, specifically in the NCAA tournament, but you can also go general as well? Yeah, I've gotten the question about uh, Miller and Matt before and the differences or similarities between them. I, I always felt like there was more similarities between the two of them than differences, especially early on in Chris's career. Because Mac and Miller, they both had the playing background. They, they both had the passion. They both had the heart. Um, they had similar ways of getting their points across, and they were both player coaches. So, you know, from that perspective, the way that they approached – uh, pre-game, the way they approached player personnel, actions of the opposing team was pretty similar. And whether it was an NCAA tournament game or a regular season game, you know, they did kind of prepare us the same way. They wanted as best that they could to make it feel exactly the same. You know, over time, I think, you know, Mac developed his style. 
a little bit more, you know, because I played for Sean Miller only as a true freshman. So I only have that one year to look back on. And I played for Chris for an additional four and one year being my knee injury. Uh, but yeah, Chris started taking more chances, I felt like, offensively over time. But in terms of their philosophy, their approach, their detail, there was a ton of similarities between those two guys. And what I will say about both of them is, is in-game pressure, they both know how to handle it. I mean, there's never a time with either of those guys where you see any panic. You know, as a player, you always felt like both of them were in complete control. You had faith um, in the way that they prepared and the way they talked to you throughout a game. But as far as, like, making winning plays and when it gets to the end of the year in the NCAA tournament, it came down to individual play and, you know, guys making big-time shots. Uh, you know, especially when I look back at my time, I mean, the two guys that stick out to me were Jordan Crawford um, and two Holloway, just the way they, they dominated end of games and they, they loved every moment of it. What was it like playing with those guys and knowing that, for example, I, I texted you during the Kansas State game watching that and thinking to myself, I wonder what these guys were thinking. And I thought, well, I guess I could just ask Brad what, what they were thinking during that game. And you saw Frank Martin tweeting last week during the replay of the game that CBS Sports Network was showing, and he was saying, I knew two was going to go to the line and make all three of those free throws. And Mario Mercurio was saying the same thing. And you just had this feeling watching that game that those guys, and two in that situation, Crawford when he hit the shot, Gus Johnson's famous call, you had the feeling those guys were in control. What was it about them that exuded that confidence? Well, Jordan was just a bucket getter. I mean, we knew whoever we played, I don't care if we played the number one pick in the draft, whoever it was, like we had a bucket getter on our team that could get it done. It didn't matter what the coaches drew up. I mean, the plays that Jordan scored on against Kansas State, we had plays drawn up, and then Jordan would just come down, go cross over, in and out, step back, hesitation to hit a three from 10 feet behind the line. So it was like we knew any time we were playing – um, a quality team, we felt like in our eyes, we had the best bucket getter on either team. And that was always Jordan. And for two, he was like the Iceman. It was like, you know, it comes down to the end of game, free throws, you know, patience, confidence with the ball. Two had that. He had it from when he was a freshman. We even go back to the games in Puerto Rico um, where we won in 2008. I mean, two hit, I think he was like 13 for 13 from the line against Memphis. And that was him as a true freshman in just his fourth or fifth game. So, you know, those two guys, they supplied us with extreme, extreme confidence. And we had quality role players. We had great bigs. We had guys that could shoot the three um, and just understood their role. So, I mean, I love that team uh, my sophomore year. Um, I think in my eyes, that was probably our, the best team that I played on. Um, I think you could argue the year of the fight where we lost to Baylor in the Sweet 16, but we got kind of, I think, screwed up throughout the year. It kind of uh, derailed us a little bit. So you feel like that Kansas State team, the team, I mean, that you guys lost to Kansas State in the tournament in the Sweet 16, you feel like that was your best team? I do, and I think Jordan kind of just trumps everything for me just because he was such a special, unique talent. Um, like, you can kind of go down the rosters and argue which one was better than the next one, but in, in my eyes – having a guy like Jordan Crawford on a team with that much talent already just trumped any other team that I was on. Did Jordan ever talk about his dunk over LeBron? In yeah, practice? of course he did. Did, did, did he ever? <laughs> what, what was that like? I mean, he, he didn't talk about it in great length, but, like, we would definitely joke about it. Like, 
I mean, that, I love seeing it because it gave him attention before the year too, which, you know, I, you love as a player, like the more eyes, the more attention on an individual player on your team, the more eyes and attention that's on your team in general. So, I mean, he, Jordan is a character. He's a king of comedy. He's hysterical. Uh, I mean, we would make plenty of jokes about it. Do you guys still keep up as a team? Do you guys still keep up much to this day? We try to. I mean, social media actually helps at times. There's so many guys playing in different countries and uh, different areas. It does make it difficult. You know, I think half of us are, you know, not playing anymore, and the other half are still playing. So, um, yeah, when you finish playing that last game as a senior, I mean, everybody kind of starts going their, their separate ways. And some guys can stay in touch because they're maybe playing in the same league or still living in the same city. Uh, but anytime guys come back to Cincinnati, you come back to a game, that's always a good opportunity to kind of reconnect. Um, one thing that I don't think fans know about or can appreciate as much, obviously because a player is the one living through it, is the ins and outs of the NCAA tournament. When you win a game on Thursday or Friday and you have less than 48 hours to read and react and play another game on Saturday or Sunday, can you take a second and take us through the timeline of what it's like to win a game on the first day of the weekend and then wake up real early the next morning or whenever you wake up and know that you have just that one day in between to prepare? What's that like mm -hmm. to go through that weekend of the tournament? Well, I mean, when you win the first game, the pressure feels like it's off a little bit because no one that gets in the tournament wants to lose game one. So, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of uh, pressure and anxiety with that initial game. And then once you can get past that one, then things start to settle down a little bit more. At least I felt like that on my end and with the teams that I played on. Uh, but, yeah, after you win that game, it's media, media, media. I mean, everybody wants to talk to you, you know, get some sort of comment or question about the game or what's next. And then, you know, almost immediately we would get shuttled back to the hotel um, and then we would go over film uh, of the team that we were expected to play. So if we were in the first game and we were waiting on to see who our opponent was and we would wait, um, if we were the second game, then we would kind of immediately go into film. But it really didn't change. Like regular season versus postseason, we always prepare for teams two days prior to the actual game. So we would go over two days before player personnel and then the day after, we would kind of go over game actions and do that in practice. Um, so, yeah, you'd play that game. You'd go back to the hotel. You'd go over film. The next day, you'd have a full probably like hour and a half practice, go over game actions, uh, kind of review player personnel. Then you'd go kind of back to the facility where we are actually playing the game, do a 30 to 35-minute shoot-around, do media once again, go back to the hotel, dinner, once again, go back over player personnel, game actions. And then depending on when the game was that next day, you do a shoot around or just kind of go right to the game. You'd be there 90 minutes before. So it's a, it's a whirlwind. I mean, you have family in town, but there's not really much opportunity to see them. I think when my parents uh, came to the tournament, I would see them for maybe about a 25 to 30 minute stint, uh, like in between games. And other than that, you're pretty much pretty much quarantine and it's not the best word to use but you're pretty much like you're pretty much locked in to just you know being prepared for that game and being prepared for the moment so you know as cool as it was to be a part of the NCAA tournament you know we were there to do a job we were there to be locked in we were there to be focused so it's a it's a a really fun time uh, but it's also you know a time where you just you're locked in and you're focused on you know what you want to do how much of the game actions and things that you practiced were done in a ballroom 
or was it all done in the court? Well, we kind of, so like the day before the game, we would do it in a, uh, like on the court. And then when we'd have like our, like our meeting prior to taking the bus to the actual game, that's when we would be in like more of a, a ballroom type setup. In and the hotel. Then, correct. And then the managers would set up tape. Um, like they'd set up a three point line and a makeshift key out of, you know, essentially just tape. And then you'd go over all the underneath out of bounds and then review game actions in that ballroom. And it, you always get such a kick out of guys like Jay Billis that tweet out the manager videos or the pictures and you see all this stuff from across the country and these managers that set stuff up. How much does that help being able to just walk through everything like that when you actually get into the game and have that calming sense of mind about you? Well, there's, I mean, yeah, there's no time at that point to do anything truly that physical. So, you know, it's just a mental game of getting yourself locked in. So the ability to like have that set up and to be able to prepare and put yourself mentally into the game, even though you're, you're not moving that much, you know, it's, it's huge. And that's where the managers and the scout team, that's when they make a huge impact because they're putting in, you know, more time with the coaching staff to make sure the players that are in the game understand what they're going to be up against, you know, because you make, you make one mistake on an underneath out of bounds and you go, under a screen and when you were supposed to go over, you know, or vice versa. And that could mean you win the game versus losing the game. Because once you get to the NCAA tournament and you're a quality team, once you get to the second round, every team is extremely talented. So, you know, you can't afford to make any mistake at all. You know, you have to understand their actions. You have to understand underneath out of bounds. Like, and all of that is so important of mentally preparing and locking into what's going to happen. And what are some of the differences and differences probably isn't even the right word because it's just such a completely different world. But when you look at the NCAA tournament versus like the conference tournament of the regular mm -hmm. season, you look at the escorts to the game, you look at the, the media coverage, you have to use the right branded water bottles and water cups and everything. What are some of the, the differences and how do the logistics work of the NCAA tournament? I mean, the difference from a player perspective like isn't like isn't a whole lot on our end. I mean, there's a bigger microscope on the game itself and, and the outside universe is, you know, more excited. But like for us, when a game's on CBS or Fox Sports Ohio or ESPN or it doesn't matter, like the cameras like look the same when you're playing the game. So, you know, I think as a player, you know, as exciting as it is, and obviously we want to win and be on a big stage and elevate our program, you know, to new heights. And hopefully one day we can make the final four, which is still a pain point for, for me. Uh, but, you know, for us, it, it, you know, I think as a player, you're just so locked in to getting it done. And you really do try to block out all the noise and all the distraction. And, you know, being away from Cincinnati, uh, being in a hotel, um, you know, it doesn't make a difference for us. I mean, we're really just locked in on what we're doing. I know it's yeah. a little bit cliche, but – you know, at that point, you know what you need to do as a player and, and you just want to get it done. Yeah. And now into some of the specific games that you played in, like I said, you played in three sweet 16s, you played in 2009 and 2010 and then 2012. And in 2010, that's the game, as you were talking about before, Kansas State, that a lot of people can point to as one of the best NCAA tournament games of all time. Certainly, Gus Johnson helped elevate that too. But going back and watching the replay of the game last week, 
there were so many points when you could tell when in timeouts and, and huddles where you're just sitting there as a fan thinking to yourself, I wonder what these guys are talking about or, or drawing up. And especially going into those last plays where two's hitting the three free throws or Jordan's hitting that shot from eight or 10 feet behind the line. How much of that was drawn up versus how much of that? And you, you hit on, mm-hmm. hit on it before where you said, you know, Jordan was coming down and just hitting shots, but Going into that that play where Jordan hits that shot or two's play where he gets fouled, how much of that is drawn up versus those guys just being such good athletes and basketball players and knowing the situation that they're just taking it into their hands? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of, of both. And, I mean, on both sides, because on Kansas State, you had Clemente and Poland, who were tremendous guards, and then you had Holloway and, and Crawford on our side. So, I mean, it's a mix. I mean, but, uh, you know, really good teams, you know, have an understanding of what players are going to take over at what moment. So, you know, to me, that's what made our team really good at the end of the year. I think we struggled a little bit early on and figured it out. But, you know, the more you play with a guy like Jordan, you know, the more you understand how he operates, you know, so when you're playing alongside him, it's about understanding, okay, when he gets into this position or he comes off his ball screen, Jordan has three options. You know, and his first option is going to be to attack and score. And his second option is going to, you know, be to drop down to the big that came off the ball screen or, or look at Jason Love or Kenny Freeze or Jamel McCain below. And then for me as a shooter, you know, I'm playing corners in space. So if he drives to my side, you know, he's either going to shoot or I'm going to play off of his dribble drive and, you know, hit a shot. So, I mean, the, the coaches would put him in situations to score, but more importantly, we just get him the ball, get him space and then give him, you know, three options to make a play. And for the most part, in that game, it was him individually making a play. And he had an incredible run throughout the tournament, so, you know, we trusted him to make plays. I mean, we've seen him do that over and over and over. Um, and two is kind of the same way, right? It was like get him off a flat screen, get him in a position where he can make a play for himself or for somebody else, give him a couple options. And those guys were so good that – as a coach, and, you know, Coach Mack would probably tell you, it's like, I don't need to draw up a whole lot. I need to get them in space and then get out of their way and let them make a play. Um, and, you know, I can't speak for Frank Martin, but I would imagine he would say the same thing. It was, you know, a lot of baseline screens for Poland. It was Clemente coming off ball screens. You know, get those guys in space and then allow your playmakers to go. Because um, I really think at the end of the year, um, as much as coaching, we talk about it and, you know, X's and O's that, you know, coaches make throughout the game. Like, the players make those plays in those games. It's bottom line because it's going to come down to one or two possessions, and you have to have a guy uh, that, you know, is magnetic with the ball in his hands and, and makes it happen. How did the mood swing throughout that Kansas State game? That was the only game I can remember being a part of where, like, I thought that game was just, like, insane while I was in it. Like, most games you, like – don't think about what's happening in the game until after or even a day or two after that was the only game I can remember like just the shots that the guys were hitting like it was it was unbelievable like it was insane the shots those guys were hitting on both sides for you know it wasn't just you know a minute it was like 20 minutes of incredible one-on-one play it was the last game um, of that night so we were the late game. All eyes were on that game across the country. Um, and I remember it. I mean, I, I was kind of playing, you know, offense, defense for, you know, the majority of those overtimes in the last five minutes of regulation. 
you know, it was just incredible to watch those guys hit shots. And then you, you would look into the crowd and just everyone was shaking their heads. And it felt like no one should have lost that game. Like, I almost wish we could have stopped the game and then played again the next day. Because it was one of those games you, just, like, didn't want to end. Um, and as far as, like, losing, you never want to lose a game. But I still look back on that game. And it's a cool moment to be a part of. Now you take a look at that game and then you go in 2012 and make the Sweet 16 again for the third time. And that season was where two Holloway took over, beat Notre Dame in the opening round. But also in the same pod, Lehigh goes and upsets Duke. Mm -hmm. Now we can all sit here and listen to the coaches and everybody as they should say, you know, it's just another game. We're going to treat it like it's a normal opponent and, treat it just like anybody else but we know and you all know in the back of your heads that lehigh is not duke mm-hmm. so when you see lehigh beat duke what are you all thinking well i mean it's like as a player like i would definitely rather see lehigh than duke i mean there's no i mean there's no question about it because when we were in playing in greensboro and you know, as a team, we're getting ready to get on the floor and we're expecting to play the two seed Duke. And now all of a sudden we go from playing Austin Rivers, Coach K, uh, you know, and just all the history and the talent that comes with playing a Duke team. And they end up getting upset by Lehigh. Now we're going on the court and we know if we win this game, we were playing Notre Dame, we beat Notre Dame, we played Lehigh to go to the Sweet 16. And it's no disrespect to Lehigh. And CJ McCollum was on that team, but you know, let's be honest, it's going to be easier for us to beat Lehigh than it is to beat Duke. And that's, that's the beauty of the NCAA tournament is, you know, you go from being a 10 seed or a seven seed to playing maybe, you know, a top eight team in the country. And then they lose to a mid-major and you're like, well, I think now we got a better opportunity to beat that team and get to where we want to go. I mean, for me personally, those were like, and even team wise, those are very different years because the 2012 year I had just come off of a knee injury so I wasn't – I really never felt like I hit my stride that year. And then even as a team, it was different too because in that 2010 year with Kansas State, we struggled early and peaked late. And then with the 2012 team, we kind of peaked early, struggled down the stretch, and then kind of pieced it together at the end of the year. So, you know, every year you know, is a little bit different, um, you know, when you look at it from an individual and team perspective. Now, you've talked about 2010, 2012, which is both of the Sweet 16s with Coach Mack, but I want to rewind for a second and take a look back at Coach Miller's Sweet 16, where you beat Portland State and you beat Wisconsin, and then you just get clipped in the Sweet 16 by Pittsburgh. What stands out to you about that game against Pittsburgh, and what do you remember? I know it's a, it might be a little painful to talk about, but what, what sticks yeah. out to you in, from that game as – as you know your last experience with coach miller before coach mac took over that was probably um like looking back on it now the most painful loss of the three because you know baylor really outplayed us um i I felt like talent wise they were they were pretty good too so that one you know we i didn't felt like we were ever really in that game like we were in the kansas state game um but the pittsburgh game i really felt like we had control of that game for the majority of the 40 minutes and we just had a couple bounces didn't go our way and then Levance Fields for Pittsburgh did he hit a couple incredible shots at the end uh but man yeah that one was painful really 
like cool opportunity because I was a true freshman at that time and my head was completely spinning with, <laughs> with everything that was going on. Um, and to play in Boston in front of that crowd. And we played uh, the game before it was Villanova and Duke and Villanova had Scotty Reynolds. Um, I'm trying to remember who's on that Duke team, but um, it was a really good group of four teams. And then to play the one seed with LeVance Fields, Dewan Blair, and that group was uh, was pretty cool, but man, yeah, Levance Fields kind of took over at the end, and we just made some we made some mental mistakes the last the last five minutes of that game that still kind of uh, stick in my head, unfortunately. What sticks out if you could get into that a little bit? There was a I remember there was there was one turnover where um, I think Derek Brown stepped out of bounds, and it was like his foot was barely over the line. That took away a possession from us. And then LeVance Fields hit a really tough shot over Dante at the top of the key. And then I remember with about 45 seconds left, we were down one, I believe. And um, we, had, we turned the ball over. I think, I think BJ and I were kind of crossing at the top of the key. And somehow we lost the ball. And then LeVance Fields got a hold of it and got a bucket. And um, th- those were like the mistakes at the end. We just like – put ourselves behind the eight ball a little bit. I think if we would have taken care of the ball just a little bit better, we would have come out on top in that game. I remember I was 12 years old and I was down in Florida for, uh, we went, took a vacation for the nationals spring training that, that year. Mm -hmm. And we were sitting on the runway. I think there was like 45 seconds left and whenever it was a one point game, you know, a minute left, whatever it was. And my dad, that was, this was pretty much before smartphones. He's got his Blackberry refreshing the, the feed and we took off with a one point game and a minute left. So mm-hmm. we were in the air for two and a half hours. And I remember sitting there going, oh, I wonder what's going to happen when we land. And we landed and it didn't turn uh, out that way, but yeah, but yeah that was, that, that was a was tough painful. game. That one was painful. And I felt like we had such a good team that year too. And just, really good depth and a connected group and um you know and then it, it ended it ended and then you go back and then Sean leaves for Arizona Chris took over Derek Brown went to the NBA and like all of a sudden it was like man what you know what happened to everything that we had um I mean we still had a great year in Chris's first year but you know if, if Derek Brown would have stayed you know for that run that Kansas State year that team would have been you know obviously even better than what it was yeah. When you guys got the news that Sean was leaving, what was the general reaction there? I mean, it was disappointment. I mean, cause um, you know, as much as the assistant coaches recruited us um, you know, every player, you know, goes to play for the head coach that's at that university. And, you know, our expectation was that he was coming back and we felt like he would because that was his most talented team in our eyes. We felt like that group was the best group he had ever had. Um, but hey, money talks. Arizona came in with a lot of money, and I mean, I think ultimately that was why he decided to leave. I mean, it's like the difference of I don't know what he was making as Xavier, maybe you know over a million, one point five at that time, uh, maybe a little bit more uh, than that, and then you go to Arizona, you're making over three million. So I mean, the decision for Sean to leave Xavier, you know, I don't think it was a decision based on talent or where we could go as a as a team. It was strictly a financial. Uh, decision in his mind I mean and I can't I can't fault him for that if I you know could triple my pay and you know not make 
just money for me and my family, but generations, like I, I would probably do the same thing. So I think we understood it, but there was disappointment. Uh, but it's a business. College basketball is a business and you get used to it. And, um, you know, we could go in a deep debate on, uh, on how that works for uh, college athletes. But at the end of the day, like as a, you know, as an 18, 19 year old, you have to figure out it's a business pretty quick and look out for yourself. So, you know, to me and just the other guys, it was like, just, you know, look out for yourself. And, you know, I love Xavier and, and ultimately felt comfortable with Chris and the players that we had. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to roll with it and see what happens. How much have you kept up with Coach Max since he's gone down to Louisville? We'll text here and there, but, um, you know, we, we both gone our separate ways. So, we'll, yeah. I mean, we, we connect, uh, you know, probably a couple times a year, but uh, I'm sure he's disappointed that his team didn't get an opportunity to play in March because I felt like his group was one of the best teams in the country. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about here before we get into your career a little more is – the 2013 team that finishes 17 and 14 and mm -hmm. a lot of people this year compared that 2013 team, not necessarily the product on the court as far as talent goes, but just the finishing record over the last couple of seasons where so many fans have grown accustomed to the success that Xavier has. And when you go two years without making the tournament or maybe you make the tournament this year, we'll never know but you have two down years in the eyes of Xavier fans. And you look at that year for you where that's your final year at Xavier in 2013 and you've made three six sweet 16s. And then you have this year where you completely fall off the cliff and you don't make the tournament and you come up three wins shy of 20 wins. What's the most important thing to remember as a fan when you're watching those games and you're thinking to yourself, the coaching staff's got to have a direction here, but there's some frustration because there's this pedestal that you feel like the Xavier program is at that they're not mm -hmm. reaching right now, but it's because they're building the talent and a new coaching style. And Chris Mack inherited that and he got Jordan Crawford. He got two Holloway mm -hmm. and Mark Lyons. He got those guys. And then those guys left. He had to rebuild the program. It took him a while, but eventually he gets a number two seed, a number one seed, and an elite eight in three straight years. So it just takes some time. But what's the most important thing for fans to remember through that? Well, it always feels like more panic on the outside than it does on the inside. I can say that for sure. Um, and then winning and, and losing is so close. It just – it is. And, you know, my senior year when we went 17 to 14 – this year, when you look at a team that more than likely probably wouldn't have made the NCAA tournament um, if there was a selection, but it's a matter of, I think my, you know, my last year, we lost 12 games and they're five point games. Um, and we didn't make enough winning plays in the first 10 games to give us a chance to get in the NCAA tournament, you know, as a, you know, an at-large selection, just like this year, there's, you know, five games that, you know, I can probably think of where if Xavier wins those games or Xavier goes to Providence and then beats DePaul, which they probably should have, that's an NCAA tournament team. And then the narrative of the season is a complete 180. You know, if we beat DePaul in that, that first round of the Big East tournament, I don't think people are as up in arms. So, you know, I think those two things are, you know, what come to mind at first. I think the frustration more with this year as opposed to, 2013 was that we only missed the tournament that one year and 
we had lost over 90% of our scoring going into that year. So you had guys that really had, you know, played very low minutes. And now all of a sudden they were thrust into a star position or a starting position, you know? So that was where we struggled early, but you could see the progress laid. And then ultimately I felt like that year kind of helped build a foundation for what Xavier did the next two to three years, which I think is true when you look at, you know, the record and who played that year and, and how well Xavier did in years after. The frustration with this year is because you have two years where you missed the tournament and you had almost all of your scoring come back this year. And, and that's where the frustration is different. Um, and and I, can, I can understand that. Um, I do feel like, and I felt like it this year, we had a core um, that, you know, didn't, didn't live up to a consistent standard, which a lot of people expected. Um, and, you know, hopefully that changes uh, next year. And, and I think it will. And, um, you know, the Big East, too, is just, it's such a brutal, it's, it's such a brutal schedule. And if you don't have a team that, you know, is top two or three in terms of their talent, it's going to be, it's going to be a roller coaster ride. And you saw that with this team and not having a primary ball handler to control the tempo and the pace at the end of the game just crushed us. I mean, it, it just did because it thrust Najee into position to make more plays than what I think he was comfortable with. I mean, phenomenal player, but just, you know, not a guy who the last two, three minutes of a game that I want to have the ball in one-on-one isolation situations all the time. That's when I want to get the ball to Jordan Crawford. or I want to get it to, you know, a guy like D Davis, who's a sure ball handler, not necessarily the scorer like Jordan was, but that's a guy that has comfortable with the ball in his hands and he's going to make a play for himself or he's going to make a good play for somebody else. We didn't have a guy like that. So when you look at the core four that was coming back, it just didn't end up, you know, turning into a player that was consistent as a leader with the ball in his hands, you know, and if Xavier doesn't figure that out next year, it's going to be the same thing. So, you know, if that player is Paul, if that player is Kiki, Duan Odom, like someone has to take the keys as a primary ball handler and be the leader in those last five minutes. Cause so many games come down the last five minutes. If you don't have a killer or a guy that wants the ball and can handle it, then it's, you're going to end up, you know, looking on the outside of the NCAA tournament. I mean, it's just, it's just reality of, um, you know, where we're at, you know, as a program where every team is at, that's in the top 75. You mentioned D you mentioned Jordan to those guys. Who were some of your favorite teammates that you played with over your career at Xavier? Well, I loved all my walk-ons, all my walk-ons. Those are my, those are my guys. Um, I, I thought my best teammate in terms of like leadership, um, you know, commitment to the team, um, understanding of personalities with CJ Anderson. I mean, I loved, I loved playing with CJ. He was, he was tough. He was physical. Weez was the man. I mean, he was an enforcer. Um, I mean, he's, he's a Cincinnati legend. He cared so much about the team. And for Weez, it was never about him. And, you know, he couldn't shoot outside really 15 feet, but he was, he would guard the best player. He would, everyone knew he had to get to the rim. He'd still get to the rim. Um, if there was ever an opposing player that was messing with anyone on our side, Weez would let him know and take care of it. And it was just, he was, he was a phenomenal, phenomenal guy to play with. And, you know, for me, I played with him as a freshman, sophomore, 
just he was kind of a guy you know for me that I you know I appreciated being around every day yeah you as your personal career you come off of Mr. Basketball in Michigan and you come to Xavier and you're lighting it up as a three-point shooter and and you mentioned how you looked at your career and your mentality on the court but knowing that you were going into the game as a guy that was going to space the floor and open things up and just be pretty much automatic from beyond the arc. What's your thought process going into the game, knowing the just acute specific role that you're out there? Mm-hmm. To well, I didn't want to be a specialist at first. I mean, that was not the, what, what did you want not, to do? I wanted to, I mean, everybody goes to like, to be the man like everyone that comes you know everyone that um gets a scholarship and you know goes to a school like they want to end up like if not being the man they want to like play their whole game um so you know when in high school i scored you know in aau i would score in every way and then you know to get on the court like that was my only way to get on the court as a true freshman so i just kind of like took that as a, a badge of honor but you know, keep in mind with like the recruiting at the time, like I was being recruited and went to Xavier. It was just me, Mark Lyons, Brian Walsh at the guard positions. And then there were some older guards as well. But ultimately, that was it. And then when Calvin Sampson got removed from Indiana, that brought in Jordan and two, you know, and, and I was already on campus at that time. So now that class went from me, Mark, Brian at the guard position. Now you add Jordan too. So, I mean, we kind of knew you know, at that point, I knew I was like, man, this is going to be challenging. So true freshman year, you know, got, you know, got through it, you know, made an impact shooting. And then sophomore year when Jordan, you know, was eligible to play, we all knew he was the best player. So it's like, you know, and I kind of got used to that at Xavier. When you play at a program that's that high level, they're going to keep bringing in guys that are NBA caliber talents. And every year I played at Xavier, we had an NBA caliber guard. Um, and then, I mean, ultimately, after my sophomore year, after I blew my knee out, it kind of like, put me in a position like of, you know, I was a little bit unsure of like what direction to go. Um, you know, I had thought about transferring. Um, yeah, I had had talks with the coaching staff about leaving, going to another school, whether, whether a, you know, more of a mid-major program or a, uh, a, just a different high-major school with a, you know, different roster maybe a more you know open offense rather than a more ball screen isolation based offense which we ended up running the majority of my time um but ultimately decided to stay um then I blew my knee out and kind of just you know I I ended up just you know buying into that role I loved playing that role at Xavier um looking back it was the best decision that I made but you know there's indecision as a player it's like should I keep going on this road or should I maybe, you know, go for a fresh start? And, um, you know, ultimately Xavier has been, been great. And I kind of just enjoyed that role of being the shooter on a big time team. And I love playing at the Sentai center in front of the fans and I still live in Cincinnati now. So, I mean, ultimately it was, it turned out great, but it didn't start wanting to just be that, but you know, it it ended up working out okay. And you see players that, have worn the Xavier uniform that are just so invested in the program and you yourself, you were the on-court hosts for, was it just one season or was it more? I think I just, I think I just did it one. I think I just did the one year. I might've done a couple of the second year, but I only did it like full time, I guess the one year. But, but even still now you host the pregame show up at Duff's with Andy Mack and 
you've been around, you have your podcast, you're producing a lot of content for Xavier and, and its fans. What is that investment in the program and the school that's still now all these years later after your playing career is done, you're still putting the X on and you're still representing the brand and you're still fully invested in what Xavier meant to you? Yeah, I mean, Xavier will always be a big, you know, part – of my life. And, you know, I am appreciative of the opportunity that I had there. And I just, I have a belief in Xavier and, and uh, you know, the mission of what they've done and the progress that, you know, a school like Xavier has made over the last two, three decades is unprecedented. And it's a such a unique culture. And I know that word gets thrown around all the time, but like when you're a Xavier fan, it's like you have, you know, a bond and people really care. And, you know, that's, that's important. You know, those, you know, those relationships and the impact, you know, Xavier for me is important and I want to be a part of the rise of Xavier and I want to be front row when we get to the final four. So for me, that's, it's just, it's, you know, an investment of, you know, supporting a program and being around and being available. And, um, um, you know, I love the relationship that I have with the school. So I don't, I don't foresee that changing anytime. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Travis. I, my first year at Xavier was Trav's first year at Xavier. So I've known him for years and just, you know, I, I love the direction he's taking us. Um, so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to do a big year from them next year. And one last thing about the games before we get into a, something a little different. Are there any specific moments that stick out to you from any of the games that you, any of the NCAA tournament games really, but if there were other conference games, any big moments that stick out mm-hmm. to you where, where you're talking to the guys on the other team. And you mentioned how you knew when you were in the Kansas State game that you knew it was crazy while it was going on. But mm-hmm. are there any moments where you can remember, you know, standing there talking to Pullen or, or Clemente or, or any of those guys? I, I named those two off the top of my head. But but any team in any game that you remember, the everybody yeah. interacting and going, guys, this is crazy. I loved, I loved, loved beating Dayton at home. I loved it. Like we, I mean, we've beaten Dayton at home so many years in a row and it was such a good rivalry. And I mean, we don't play it right now, but like, I love that game at home. And you have all the presidents, you know, the past presidents that we beat Dayton through. And like, it was just like, we'd always get into a scuffle with them at half court at some level. And then we just, we beat them every time. And it was that game. I love that game. And, um, um, I wish there was some way we could bring that back because it's such a good rivalry and both sides love it. And, uh, but the beat downs of Dayton at Cintas, I enjoyed those. Um, and then, uh, senior night was a good night, uh, individually. So just, we had, we had just come off beating Memphis who had won like 20 straight games. And then we were playing St. Louis, who was a top 20 team. And, you know, although that year we didn't have the record that we were hoping to have, it gave us a little bit of indication after, you know, you beat a team like Memphis who had, you know, was one of the hottest teams in the country. And then we pull out an overtime win on senior night versus St. Louis. Um, and I hit a shot in both games, like under a minute, you know, to kind of turn the tide a little bit. So that for me was a kind of a special moment of getting over the full hump of the injuries that I had and finishing it out. That was kind of an important, important week for me with both of those games. So we've talked a lot of basketball. Now we get into All right, the quarantine. Switching, switching subjects here, man. We get into the quarantine a little bit. What are you doing to stay busy? So, well, yeah. I, so my fiance and I, we're, we're, we're in the process of closing the house. 
So that's been like, that's been number one. I, I've been working, I've been working as needed. I've been working like everybody else, but Breaking Bad, I, I had never watched it before. I'm, I'm in through season five right now. I'm about three episodes in at season five. I, I enjoy, I've enjoyed it, but it is, it is intense. And, and Walter White is starting to drive me nuts, man. He's driving me nuts. Yeah. Well, he's a perfectly designed character. He goes through the whole thing where he just wants a little bit of money in the beginning and then he just gets greedy and he realizes he's his own boss and he's the master of everything and he just takes over and he can't let that control go. Yeah. He goes from a, a chemistry teacher, you know, it's made $40,000 a year to, you know, being one of the biggest meth dealers in the friggin' world and turns into El Chapo. So it's just, uh, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a wild ride. So I am going to finish it, but I, I have to admit the intensity of it. Like I've had dreams of meth and Walter White and it's just, <laughs> I need, I was going to watch it last night and I was like, I need a break from Walter. I'll, I'm going to get back to it this evening. So what else are you doing to stay busy? Anything else? It's a, just, it's a good just question. Been watching a, TV. It's a good question. I I I'm not a I'm not typically a, a reader, but I found myself uh, reading a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's going okay. I don't know how much I'm retaining, but I'm at least you know <laughs> acting like I'm reading. Um, Mr. I, Rose I would my, be proud of you. Yeah, yeah. I found myself going on a few walks. Yeah, Sister Rose would be surprised that I that I even own a book. <laughs> let alone let alone reading any of the actual pages in it um but no it's been i mean as as bad of a situation it is and i feel for everybody on the front line and in hospitals um you know ho i hope everyone's taking opportunities to be with family and and you know organize and getting their stuff together and i don't want to be the one five years from now saying i was anxious and wish i would have taken more time to you know talk to the people that are close to me so I, th I think there's a lot of people that are taking the time to connect with friends and family and so i've been doing that as well and you know it's an uncomfortable situation for everybody but you know hopefully some people like what we did today i don't i don't, I don't know hopefully it provides a little bit of a relief to a degree from looking at the news i can't look at the news like, like non-stop you know i'll get my 30 minutes of coronavirus talk you know get up to speed with everything and then i got i can't I can't go down the rabbit hole. I did it a, like a couple of weeks ago and I just, I, I won't do it again. I'll know what I need to know, but uh, you know, taking the proper precautions and, and being careful and, you know, doing that stuff, of course. Oh, oh crockpot meals too. Crockpot meals. I got, Oh yeah. yeah. The, we yeah, just, yeah. that was, that was dinner last yeah. night. Yeah. I've been throwing, throwing some stuff and I might do some spare ribs in the crockpot tonight. So. Oh man, you got a got a grill situation, or are we just no? Just you throw it in the crock pot. You just throw it in the crock pot. Put the spare ribs in there. Put a little open pit barbecue sauce in there. Let it go for about six hours. And what are the go. sides? Well, microwavable corn. Um, okay. Maybe some freezer broccoli. Um, some Uncle Ben's rice that heats up in ninety seconds. So always uh, solid. Yeah. So I mean, the Uncle Ben's is key. Although it's, it's getting harder to find that at the store right now. <laughs> It is. Like, Uncle Ben's, is, there's nothing there. It's like vanished from miles. Uh, it's so easy to make. It's dangerously easy <laughs> to make. Dangerously good. So Uncle Ben's, keep up the good work, man. <laughs> Fred, thanks so much for joining me today. All right, brother. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that interview with former Xavier basketball player Brad Redford as much as I did. Brad's always a great conversation, very generous with his time, and thanks again to him for taking the time to talk to me about all those different things. Hope you 
learn something new along the way. And if you did like it, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to subscribe as well for more podcasts from this stream coming soon. And again, if you didn't catch it in the beginning, you can watch most of these interviews. Just go to my YouTube channel, search Paul Fritchner. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you soon next time on Paul's Points.